Welcome to the realm of magic and mystery, classic horror and sci-fi. You are now entering the House of the Unusual podcast with your hosts, Eddie and Joe. Today, your host, Eddie Guevara and Joe Pavlansky will be uh, bringing you some of the best and talk show radio you can listen to. Uh, Joe, how are you? Ah, not too bad, Eddie. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Joe. I wanted Joe to ask you concerning Cryptic Classics, which has been a pretty good uh, Facebook um, page that has quite a few members. Um, Want to tell me a little bit about it, Joe? Sure. Uh, a few years ago, I started a Facebook page. It was actually called Classic Horror and Sci-Fi Historians, and it was a page mainly about classic horror and sci-fi and digging into the history kind of you know of that genre and then about a year ago i i decided to change it up i wanted to make it more of like a fan page you know what i'm saying where where people could interact and they could network and really have fun along with getting into the history of you know our, our classic horror and sci-fi films so i changed the name to to crypt of classics i thought that that fit pretty well and it's kind of just like a hangout, you know, where, where people could come together and they could get to know one another, you know, that have similar interests, you know, kind of like, you know, how me and you are. And, you know, kind of like, you know, remember when we met in uh, Universal Monster Army. Which is uh, which is a kind of forum similar to Cryptic Classics, right? Right. Yeah. So you have the same kind of, you know, people there that they got these same interests and, you know, they they're full of information you're full of information and everybody's eager to you know share it with everyone and share pieces of their collection of their books you know and it's it's also a pretty cool page where you could you know showcase your artwork you know if you've written a book or any articles you could uh you could put it on there usually when i because I, I write for uh, scary monsters magazine so anytime that i have an article that comes out i'd like to put it out there to help you know, promoted it. I get, you know, some good feedback on there from fans. And now, it's, now Joe, it's, how, it, I'm sorry, Joe, go ahead. It, it's just, you know, it, it's a good site for, you know, all of us to get together and, you know, all of us monster kids and just have a good time. Well, Joe, let me ask you a question concerning uh, your writing for Scary Monsters. Now, I understand that you have been writing for them for many years now. Yeah, I'm going on about two years now. I think this October will be my my second year anniversary, and it's been a it's been a pretty cool ride. It was something, you know, back in the ni- late '90s, I started collecting uh, Scary Monsters magazine because at the time, I think it was about '96, '97. Famous Monsters was kind of like hit and miss. There, it really wasn't going on too much, and there really wasn't too many other monster mags. There was uh, cult movies, uh, you know, of course, Fangoria, which kind of dealt with more contemporary stuff. You know, on a magazine for the classics, so I, I kind of gravitated to the scary monsters. You know, uh, Joe, I'll tell you a little story about Fangoria. Fangoria is owned by the same company that publishes uh, Starlog magazine. Now, Starlog back in the early 70s, uh, this is way, way back when I was pretty small. They, uh, when they first came out, one of the incentives that they would give their, their uh, people that would subscribe to them was that they got a, a li- not a life size, but a, a, a blueprint of Robbie the Robot. 
And as a kid, I saw that and it, uh, you know, I always wanted it, but actually I wound up getting it when I was an adult because obviously my parents didn't let me to subscribe to Starlog. It was like, I think at the time it was like $20 a year, uh, which was a lot for the seventies. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting that the story I wanted to bring up to your attention is that one time back in the early days of mail order for me back, like in 1985, I wanted to sell a hypnotic uh, book, The 25 Lessons in Hypnotism. And the only affordable uh, place I could go really that I could run a one-inch ad was Fangoria and Starlog. Now, they're both, again, by the same publisher. So I actually wrote the ad, and I had an artist uh, design the ad for me. It came out really nice, kind of like the American Circle Corp ad where you got the guy hypnotizing the girl that's very famous in comedy. Right, right. Well, the thing that was funny about that is that they rejected my ad because they said that what I, the audience I was trying to reach was not, um, uh, I guess the best way they said is that my ad was not suitable for their audience. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're, you you have all this gore and stuff, and a book about hypnotism is not suitable for your audience? Yeah. They actually yeah, turned my ad like around. They... I mean, they turned my ad away. I couldn't run the ad, and I, I just couldn't believe it. See, back in the day, when you run an ad in, in magazines or comic books and stuff, if you really were not well-known or, you know, you're a newbie, they sometimes would reject your ads. It wasn't that easy to run an ad. And before I actually got my ad into popular science, I remember that one time they had me kind of change a few words on it. Um but anyway, I just since you mentioned Fangoria, I just thought that that was an interesting tidbit there to bring up. And yeah, that, that's pretty interesting <laughs> that they would, you know, turn away, you know, money for for an ad. But I guess that at that time, you know, maybe pre, you know, internet or the the infancy of the internet, they they were probably getting inundated with, you know, people wanting to put ads in their magazine for all kinds of different stuff. So I guess maybe they really had to be picky because. See if they could only put five or six ads in a magazine, and they got fifty ads. They had to really kind of narrow it down to what they could, you know, put in there to hit their, I guess, their target market. Well, here's the thing that was funny about that: the cost of the ad. This is really going to make you laugh. It was fifty dollars for one inch, <laughs> so it was pretty affordable. Wow. And then the Fangoria one was forty five dollars. Uh, Starlog was a little, you know, obviously uh, more expensive by about five dollars because they had a bigger circulation. And if I remember, I recall the circulation at that time was like 150,000 magazines. Um, oh, wow. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a whole, whole big deal. Now, one thing that I can tell you about magazine circulations and when you run ads, especially in the mail order business, is that I found that sometimes when you would run an ad, like the best ad I ever ran to this day that I got the best return for the dollar on was an ad that said, Free flying saucer plans catalog two dollars. And I ran that in both popular science and popular mechanics. Um, popular science outdid popular mechanic by quite a few orders. In fact, I remember if I'm correct that I got over 700 orders from popular science, and the magazine itself, the cost of the ad was I think $14 a word at the time. So, you know, you got to make it 15 words or more or less actually the minimum was 15 words and that was one of my first entrance into mail order you know one of the first ads i ever ran and it was really fascinating but i ran another ad which uh, earlier before i started selling the novelty business i was selling how-to books and 
And basically, back in the day, the big thing was just like right now, it says make money on the Internet. It was make money in mail order. And Mother Earth Magazine, which is a very famous publication, still published today at that time, was inundated with ads that have all this uh, famous, you know, make money here, make money. It was all about like starting a business. So um, I ran in one particular magazine, which is very popular. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called Entrepreneur. And there's also another one called Inc. And I ran an ad in both magazines. The cost was like either between $10 and and $15 a word. And Entrepreneur with a 200,000 circulation. I got, I believe, I mean, the one ad that I ran there was something like uh, name your own income, profit daily, guarantee, no selling, work from home, grow big fast. And I worded I mean, that's that's as close as I remember how I word. I would actually have to look at one of my original ads and see how it was. But it was like that name your own income. Um, and uh, I ran it at the same time, the same month in a magazine that was a very small magazine. I thought it was called In Business. And it had a circulation of about 55,000. I doubled the amount of orders from the small magazine than from the larger circulation. So, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was really fascinating because I, I couldn't understand why, you know, some magazines would generate more than others, um, especially in uh, in the field of that. Now, I, I wanted, at that time, the the holy grail of magazine advertising would be um, the Better Homes and Garden because they had like an 8 million circulation. So at this that's time... Un, that's like unheard of nowadays. Oh, it's... They're still, not even close. <laughs> they're, they're still actually, I would say, you know, they're still pretty large in their circulation because they're still being published. But at that time, you had a lot of mail order companies. Uh, some were Foster Trent. Uh, others were Harriet Carter. Uh, you had um, Kimball's, Miles Kimball. Uh, you had quite a few of, you know, those famous uh, uh, mail order companies at the time. And Anytime you picked up a Better Homes and Garden, if you were able or you could afford to run their ad, you would get massive amounts of order. Now, here's, here's the funny thing. The classified section with a minimum of 15 words, I think it was, or 12 words, the cost was $49.15 per word. <laughs> wow. So you will, I mean, you have to take a big risk. Now, unlike today, you go, for example, you go to... Uh, the internet, you run an ad and, you know, whatever, you put a thing in eBay and, you know, it comes out. Well, back then when you ran an ad, you will mail the ad in or the, you know, the, the, what you wanted to do, you had to mail it in with the, at the time that they used to be called, I forgot the um, camera ready artwork. You had to mail them, whatever, or if it was a classified, you had to fill out the information and mail it in. And the magazine say you wanted to run a magazine in March you would run the ad. It would take three months for the ad to come out. And then the magazine would go on sale. So you really could not test the waters until like six months had gone by. So in order for a person to be profitable in mail order at the time, they had to run or they had to have enough money in their pocket to be able to run six, seven months worth of ads and experiment to see which one would draw in the most people or draw in the most crowd in. Well, anyway, you know, and, and that's how you came up with the results. And then you tested and tested until you made money. Um, it was a whole different thing. Now, with the dawn of eBay and the dawn of the Internet in, in two, after 2000, you know, it changed the whole frontier 
of mail order as a whole. Because, oh, absolutely. I mean, now you're on eBay, you, you run an ad on eBay for 25 cents and reach, you know, 40, 50 million people. And here's the thing too, you know, with, with trying to find items, you know, you know, back in 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the, even into the 90s, you know, basically your pre-internet days is that you had to buy these publications in order to see what was being advertised. Whereas today, it's at your fingertips. You could go on, like you said, eBay or Amazon or, you know, some of these other auction sites or, or, or websites, and you could find these items within a few seconds. Whereas, you know, decades ago, it, it might take you months to find an item or, you know, you might have to order it and wait that four to six weeks for it to come in. Could you imagine kids today telling them they have to wait four to six weeks for something to come in when we're so used to, you know, Amazon next day delivery? I mean, it would, you know, it, it's kind of crazy to think about it. You know, some of the, mo- the some of the most or my favorite letters that I get from my customers and, and people that I know, um, which I actually came across one a few days ago, it basically told me that one of the things that they miss in growing up is the imaginative or the best way to put it is when we were kids and we would look at an ad, say, in a comic book. And now I say comic books because that's what I used to look at all the time or, you know, famous monsters of Filmland, the Captain Company. You would look at those ads, and uh, of course, at that time, being you know more lenient, uh, a different time where laws were not as strict as today, and people were able to basically run fraudulent ads and get away with it. Um, they would always picture things such as you know bigger than life, like you got the the famous Polaris nuclear submarine. Uh, here, they would tell people that it was made of two hundred pound test fiberboard, which in reality is two hundred pound test cardboard. But when you looked at the fiberboard and, and you say seven feet big enough for two kids to, to walk in, it's fascinating because it, it gives a small juvenile, a small person in, with a feeble mind of, uh, of an eight-year-old or seven-year-old to imagine things with whatever they're reading. And, and the pictures are usually the ones that sold the product more than the actual writing. And give you for example, when I was young, uh, back in uh, Cuba, when I was about four four years old, right before I came into the country, um, I was passing through the street one day with my mom, and she's holding me by the hand, and she shows me a Tonka truck that was on the Some kid was playing with a Tonka truck, and she says to me, that's a pedal car. You can drive it. Now, it's, ironic, it's kind of funny the way I'm going to say this, because the Tonka truck was the size of a Tonka truck. How can you get into a Tonka truck? But I saw I saw that it had a little steering wheel in the back of it with the dump, you know, where the dumpster thing is. And it Uh had a steering wheel inside there. Don't know why. But when I looked at it, in my mind, I thought that I could literally get into this truck. I mean, I didn't imagine, you know, how am I going to do shrink, uh, shrink myself to get. I mean, I wasn't sure. But anyway, fast forward to the United States. Now, I'm I came here in in October 30th of uh, 1968. And while I was here and I started reading the comic books and stuff, when I read the Polaris nuclear submarine, and this is the funny thing, I'm thinking, first of all, I didn't know how to swim. I was afraid of drowning. So I was kind of a little scared about ordering the submarine. But when I finally 
got around to, you know, to say to myself, you know what? I'm going to put it inside my bathtub. But here's the funny thing about the submarine. Though. <laughs> In my mind, I thought I could walk inside the submarine. So I'm thinking, I'm going to put this thing in the bathtub, and it's going to be big enough for me to walk inside. And Like you're an actual submarine. Yeah, but, but the funny thing about it, though, is the imagination of, a, like, how in the world would you even think that you can put a submarine in a six-foot uh, sub, I mean, in a six-foot bathtub and walk inside the thing? So that's how wild our imagination was at the time. Just well, You know, we, it, we, we talked about this the other day about you know, imagination, how when we were kids, you know, that's what we, we used most of all was our imagination. Whereas today, these kids, they have so much technology that kind of does the work for them where they're losing, you know, it almost seems like they're losing their imagination. You know, I remember, you know, back in the eighties when when I was a young kid and even into the, the early nineties, you know, my my PlayStation at that time was the sandbox. I, yeah, you know, I'm sure a lot of people out there remember, you know, having a sandbox, and that was my, you know, that was my GI Joe battleground. That was my my He Man, you know, Eternia land where where battles were going on. That's where my monsters lived, and it was it was a sandbox. And if I wasn't in the sandbox, you know, I was out playing you know, army or cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians. And, you know, or, or I was doing something that involved my imagination because we, you know, we didn't have all this stuff or we had limited stuff. I mean, I'm sure you remember tying, you know, a bed sheet around your, your neck and pretending you were a superhero. Well, you know, I think prior to your time, actually, when I was really young, the funny thing about that is that George Reeves, which, you know, you are aware that all the Reeves are from Steve Reeves, that was Hercules, and then George Reeves, the original Superman, to uh, the other Reeves, that Christopher Reeves, that was in the wheelchair, that did the modern-day Superman. Um, George Reeves, in my opinion, was always my favorite Superman. And at that time, a lot of kids, especially in South American stuff, would put on capes and jump out of windows. In fact, that was something that my mom was always afraid of. And I got to be honest with you, it did enter my mind that I was able to do that because in the in the superhero part, like when you see the, the original Superman, he always jumps out of a window and starts flying. So I lived in the third floor in New York City in the Washington Heights area, which is northern New York City, Manhattan, 173rd Street. And... Um, I was in the third floor, and I got to tell you the truth. It kind of entered my mind once or twice that I, I would be I, able I, to leap out the window and fly. Yeah, I've been there, too. <laughs> I remember being a kid, and, you know, we we lived in a, a Cape Cod, and I had the my bedroom in the attic, and I always thought, man, if I put on a cape, I could jump out the window and fly like Superman. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, and thank God my parents were there to tell me, no, you know, it's not going to work. It's make-believe, but, you know. I watched Superman on TV. I watched, you know, the George Reeves, you know, reruns. I watched, you know, Christopher Reeve play Superman. I said, man, if I put on a cape, I, I could do this, well, <laughs> you know, the same thing. That's what I'm saying. And, and just recently I found uh, in my collection, I found my original cape that my mom had done for me. Um, I drew her the X, the S, 
And then she actually embroidered it onto the cape. And I still have it today, which is so funny. But, you know, oh, to wow, be honest that's, you, that's priceless. I didn't have anybody to really tell me, don't jump. Like, my mom was working. I was there with my grandma and granddad, grandfather. Because, you know, my father had stayed in Cuba. I didn't get to see him until I was 38. But it was kind of funny, though. Thank God I, I never got the actual idea of doing it, you know. But I got to tell you something, though. That is one of the reasons, like a lot of people tell me, why do you sell mail order? Why do you do what you do? And I love to hear people tell me that they want to relive the original time when as a kid, you would see an item, place an order for the item, and then you just waited desperately in anticipation, waiting for this product to come that in your mind was bigger than life. And sometimes, like, you know, a lot of people say they got disappointed when they received it. I didn't really know what disappointment meant. When I got the stuff, even though I knew they had ripped me off, or I know today, I still treasured it. And that feeling, that feeling of of wonder, that feeling of, of anticipation, the, the feeling of just waiting for something brings a lot of our our people, our collect people's collectors out there, people my age, your age brings us back to a childhood time, which was much more different. And that is what makes me do, oh, that is why I do what I do. That- well, 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 check this out, because this, this involves about the time when, when me and you met. So, so today I was talking with, uh, with Craig Tarbeck from Johnson Smith Company, and we were having a nice little, little chat, and I, I was telling him some of kind of like my memories of mail order stuff. So I, I told him, I said, I remember the x-ray glasses. Everybody knows the x-ray glasses. Now I remember seeing them, you know, I don't know if it was comic books from the eighties or if I had some of my dad's old ones that I seen the x-ray glass, you know, um, advertisements in, but it had to be around mid or mid to late eighties. So I always wanted the x-ray glasses i said you know this is how cool would that be i could see the bones in my hands you know and i could see you know what i'm made of and this and that and you know for some reason or another i just as when i was a kid i never got the x-ray glasses so fast forward a few decades when you know me and you started talking uh, from the universal monster army website and i placed an order from your website house of the unusual I got the x-ray glasses. I said, man, these are going to be cool. I said, I, I know, you know, it's probably overblown hype, you know, from the, you know, from the advertisements, but I've always wanted a pair. So I, I, I remember being in, you know, cause I had all my collectibles and we live in a Cape Cod, my wife and I, and I have all my, a lot of my collectibles in the attic. So I remember standing in my attic and putting on the glasses and looking at my hand and, just being so disappointed <laughs> that I could not see my bones, but I was just, I was so happy. I, I had the glasses on and I must've been grinning ear to ear because I, I'm just staring at my hand and moving it, you know, front and back against the, the light of the window. And I'm like, man, you know, I don't see it, but this is really cool. You know, I, and I, I, it was just, it was just cool to finally get the, finally get the glasses that I had wanted for decades. And, for some reason, while I was an adult years before that, you know, never, you know, bought them or, or for whatever reason, but I finally had them. And although I was disappointed, <laughs> I couldn't see my bones, but 
it was just so cool. And, and it brought me back to, you know, when I was like five, six years old and what would the five or six year old me think, you know, when he had these x-ray glasses on, how, you know, how cool would it be and how, how far would my imagination run just having those glasses on because it was running as an adult. You know, I, I was probably in my early thirties then when I got grabbed the glasses and I said, man, if I was five or six years old and had these glasses, I would have thought I was, you know, some kind of superhero or something, you know, Superman, I could see through walls and I could see through my skin. So it was, it was something really special. And then, you know, I have to, I, I never told you that story, but I have to, you know, thank you for, having those glasses available because it, it brought me back to a, a simpler time. And that, that nostalgia effect just was really cool and really hit me pretty hard. So you see, you just reminded me when I was little, um, I had a, a next door neighbor that became my best friend. And for some reason, this kid had a wild imagination, but I was a sucker that believed everything he told me. Now his name was Albert. And the funny thing about it is that, I remember him telling me that the x-ray glasses really worked. And I waited for the x-ray glasses in anticipation. I ordered those from Johnson Smith. I didn't order those from Honor House. I ordered them from Johnson Smith. And when I got them, okay, I the, the thing that drew me the most is because you see kind of the girl and you're like, hmm, I wonder if I could see more than, <laughs> than I want to see. You know, <laughs> That's every they, little they kid. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> They purposely did that. They purposely drew the girl with the dress, see-through dress, so that it, it gave a lot of young kids uh, my age at the time, you know, imaginative things, you know, things happen in the brains of little kids, you know? Oh, so I, yeah. I uh, I got them, and uh, <laughs> I looked through them, and I'm, I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> something here is not working right. So I remember, <laughs> I remember putting the sheet in front of the light, like it said, a white sheet, because in, in back of the original glasses, there were instructions on how to use them. And it will tell you to drape a sheet. Like in back day, it, it was very popular to have a, a clothesline dryer. All the buildings had one in the back, you know. And I got the, a rope and I tied it from one corner of the rope to the other. I put the sheet. And then it was kind of, it was really funny because my cousin, my, my grandmother used to babysit my cousin. And she was about my age, you know. And uh, we were both, I mean, I was like eight. She was like seven, whatever. And... I, I said to her, pass in front of the the, the sheet there. I want to see if this thing. And she's like, no, no, I'm not, you know. <laughs> and she did it. But the, the, the whole thing is that the, it didn't work. And it was so funny, though, because I I forgot what I did one time. But I, I think I, I the lens came out of one of my original because it was a plastic frame. I still have my original, by the way. The only thing, one of the legs broke off. And it's still missing that leg because I, I, I was never able to fix it. Um. So I do still have the original, and the lens came out, and then I open it up, and I see a feather, and I go, what the heck? A feather? And it's <laughs> like, you know, like, I, I just didn't question it or anything. I mean, I still love them. I love the way they look, um, what they were, and, it, you know, again, I, I don't know if you could say I was naive or something, but I never realized that they had ripped me off. Like, I always wanted to order something else, even though over and over again, I was ripped off, you know. I, I think that was kind of the the appeal of it. You, you know, you you purchased one item and you kind of like, man, this thing kind of sucks, and you got ripped off. And you're like, okay, let me buy this item. Maybe this one's better. And then that one came, and you know that one sucked too. And you're like, man, you know, 
let me order this item and, and it just kept going on and on and so you had all these you know items and you're like well okay now I, now I have all this stuff what am I going to do with it well you, you know something Joe back in the day okay let's say television well in my time uh, for you to have a color television in New York City in 1970 you were kind of a little wealthier than the rest you know what I'm saying and everybody had a big black and white TV and one of the televisions I had, had this huge knob and it had four legs. And I think that it was 25 inch and that was considered the big screen, you know, and it had a glass in front of the, the inside of the TV there. So it, it was kind of interesting because when you, in that time, you would want something or, or you bought something or you saw it in television, the whole generation of people, at that time were where you really had, you know, you had basically nothing else. You, if you wanted to watch Avon and Costello, if it didn't come out, you didn't watch it. There's no VHS. There's only super eight film that, you know, you recorded for like three minutes and it was silent. It lacked, you know, it it was a totally different thing than what we have today. It, It was it's almost hard to imagine a time where everything wasn't at our fingertips. I mean, it's so ingrained in us now. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, because today we have so, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like, you know, the very first um, game that I got, the very first, um, it was, I wasn't called ColecoVision. It was called, like, before, I remember seeing Atari, the first Atari 2600 system. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was about, gosh, I don't know seven, eight years old, and I saw it, and it was selling for $199. That was a lot, man, for that system. Of course. Oh, back you know, in, back in what would that have been, the 70s? Yeah, in the early 70s, and they gave me for Christmas one of those ping pong things that it would go, dee, dee, you know, in black and oh, white. Oh, pong, yeah. Yeah, and, and then one day <laughs> in Christmas, my mom bought me one that looked like a triangle. And one side, it had a steering wheel. The other side, had a gun where you got to shoot this little white and black and white guy that would go around the screen. And then the other one was the ping pong thing. You know, I still have that original game, which is so funny. Uh, and you would buy cartridges that would go in the center. I don't know who made it. It wasn't Atari. Uh, I know there was one ColecoVision. ColecoVision was also, uh, you know, during the Atari time, it was like the competitor to Atari, I guess. But um, I forgot right now. I mean, I don't remember exactly. I still have all that stuff, which is so funny that I actually kept that. Uh, well, you know, I, I remember when Nintendo first came out, you know, the original NES system. I, I have and, them. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I do, too. I, I That's like that's still one of my favorite systems and a lot of my favorite games. Do you remember? Rem- do you remember the, that? I'm sorry. Do you remember the Nintendo with the little robot that it would move and. Like you, you know how like the the hand would grab, like a spinning top, and would put it in another thing, and it was a Nintendo for the television. Do you remember that one? No, was that a game? The Nintendo, the Nintendo for TV. I, I forgot what it was, Nintendo, but it had a robot on the on the console itself, and the robot went from like the right to the left, and when you were gonna play a game, the robot picked up a spinning disc. You don't remember what I'm talking about? Uh, Gosh, no, I, I'm, I'm gonna have we're gonna have to talk about that in another show. I do have that game, and it belonged to my son-in-law when he was little, and I I have it with the robot, but I forgot what Nintendo it was. Probably if you Google, you can find out a little bit about it. 
But yeah, that was a very, very uh, famous game when it came out. Disappeared from the scene quick because obviously new things came out and it got more advanced. But video games were big in my time. And they're, I mean, not in my time as a kid. Um, As a kid, the only video games that I would find would be at the local Two Guys. Now, Two Guys is a, a store that was located in New Jersey. And the original owners of Two Guys are the people that own today. Um, what's the name of this? Uh, the biggest land holdings in the country, Vernado Industries. Vernado. Okay. okay. Vernado started the Two Guys. There were two Jewish fellows, I believe, and they were the owners of Two Guys in New York and New Jersey. And there was a there was a couple of them. Now, Two Guys would be an equivalent to an early day five and dime store. Okay, so. Um, kind of like Woolworth and Wilco. Well, Two Guys was a store in New Jersey that when my aunt would pick me up on the weekends, me and my mom and my grandmother and grandfather was to go over to the Paramus area where I spent most of my time as a kid, they would take us to the Two Guys store. Now, the Two Guys store had a little section of video games. Now, ready for this. This is going to make you laugh. The first thing it had were the bowling alleys that you put like a dime in and the bowling pins were attached uh, to this little, I mean, the the bowling alley I'm talking about, they were like 10 feet long. You know, they're, they're like uh, the ones you put a coin in that you see in Chuck E. Cheese. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but they were, you know, instead of the ball, you throw the ball into the holes. No, no, it was actual pins and you threw this wooden ball and you supposedly, you know, you knock the pins down, whatever. Um, in reality, the pins would race up because they were attached to the top. Now, the video games that you would put a quarter in were usually shooting games that had a big rifle on the console. And then the rifle, the tip of the rifle had like a, ch- a chain, so you could only move it so much. So you, it, the, the rifle would be on a ball bearing, and the, the front of the rifle would be on a tip there. And then you would see way inside the... Um, the you know like the video console like if you when I'm talking about the console like Space Invaders you know the 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 video game consoles the right. the the ones that are in the stores and you would shoot either ducks metal ducks and when you shot you heard like in the in the bottom part of it you heard a shot like it's kind of like when you go to the arcade games over in Coney Island or you know any amusement park and you have this this one guy in the big arcade game where you get the gun and you shoot this guy playing a piano. And you shoot the little red metal disc, the little red disc or whatever. It was kind of like that. And the other game that was funny, the driving game, you would sit down and the steering wheel would be attached to a bar. On the front of the bar would be a plastic car, okay, red or blue, whatever color it was. And then the background, the background inside the screen would move. And when you crash, a light underneath the car would go. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> and, you know, and you can drive at different speeds. Well, those were the video games of my time. As I grew up into the age of fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, then the first one came out with Space Invaders and Asteroids, and I started going to a lot of those video arcades, which they sprung all up all over the place, right? And then the difference, well, the reason actually I didn't stick to the video games were because as they got more complex and they got more advanced 
it was see in the you play Nintendo. I mean, not Nintendo. You play Atari Space Invaders, for example. You have three characters, and if you get killed, you're gone. It's the game's over. Well, in the new games, you kind of got killed, but you always had like this eternal life that you will keep coming out and, and oh. So I did not see an end to it. So you would play, just like you know all this new ones they have now. Uh, the different video games they have now, you always play them and play them. And it's like you keep playing until you get to the end of the game. You get killed a million times, but you keep coming back to life. Well, I kind of did not like that. I wanted to see where you start the game. You got three or four lives, like in Asteroids. You got three ships. If the ships got destroyed, bam, it was it. It was over. Well, no. Yeah, back to the beginning. Yeah, back to the beginning. Well, now it, it kind of it, it disillusioned me a little. I kind of did not stay with the game industry, which is a shame because some people today are making millions just playing games, which is, is bizarre that that's even possible today. But, you know, hey, we're in a totally different society. We, we came from a place when we had to imagine things, play with cardboard boxes, play with uh, anything we could imagine. And... Um, We've come to a decade where the technology is there and it's so advanced that sometimes the shame of it is that a lot of the young kids today, when they do play, they kind of don't really know much more than the play. Like if you would ask them, who's the president of the United States or something, they'll go like, what? You know, I I don't know how best describe it. I, I guess with technology also makes people not have a, a much of an imagination as they did way back and there is less. So I think that's why we still have this genre out there. And that's why I still sell my stuff so well, because that older genre, those older folks out there from the genre, not older, older genre, but from the, the genre that I'm in still want to remember those days because they feel that those were the better days. They feel that that was a time growing up that they want to rekindle. And that is why I always, for no some unknown reason, at certain times of the year, start getting massive letters from people and I start getting orders for things. Like, who would have known that the best-selling item in the last three months during this uh, quarantine we're in was the seven-foot ghost? I sold almost 60 of them. Which is bizarre because you would think if it was Halloween, I'd say, okay, but no, I am selling this like wildfire right now. And you know, and speaking, and speaking of your, your seven foot ghost and, and selling these items, tell us a little bit about your, your website and the products you're on there because there, there's so much well, cool items on there that, that kind of really bring you back to those well, those simpler times and better times. Th- th- this is what I've done. I had a website that was built in 1998 and it stayed with the same products since 1998. It just gave me a web presence because 90% of my business that I did was done through eBay and some of it was done through Etsy. Um, what happened was is that there was a problem with the hosting company that I had a few months ago. And they got sued supposedly by the people that worked with them. I don't exactly know what happened or the reason, but they were taken out of business. So one day I go to look at my website to pay the yearly fee 
and my website was nowhere to be found. And I said, what the heck? So anyway, fast forwarding, I was able to get the name, of course, because it is a trademark. House of the Unusual is a trademark, so I'm protected worldwide because uh, I do have a global trademark on it. But the thing that was interesting, though, is I had to open a whole new website. Now, what I did is, and, and this is something that's, that's very important, is I still have 80% of my sales through my eBay page. But my website, I've only put on there 15 products. And the reason I put 15 products is because I was trying to figure out what would be the best way to make a more intuitive, a more fun website to come to. So what I did on the site, though, is that I added a forum and I also added a blog. And I started asking people that come to the site to join both the forum and the blog so that they can interact with other people of similar likes, kind of like cryptic classics. You want people to get come there, Universal Monster Army. They deal with the different, um, uh, different likes, and and most of our likes are like the same thing. It'll be Aurora Monsters, Universal Monsters, you know, whatever. Aurora is obviously the Universal Monsters, but I'm saying people can post and talk about different things. Now, the reason I've done that is because I just don't like to sell items. I like to engage with people and talk about this stuff. This is what drives me. So when I'm doing something, I want to do something that I enjoy and I, I take pleasure in. And there's nothing more than the mail order business that I enjoy. I mean, you know, and no- that was and, and that was one of the things that, you know, kind of. I guess, pulled me into the House of the Unusual, you know, way back in like 2012 or 13, uh, when we started talking over at the the Universal Monster site is that, you know, and I I found your items and it wasn't just like a, okay, you know, here's my items, you know, go ahead and buy them, pay for them, I'll ship them, thanks, have a nice day. You know, there was a, uh, there was a personal connection there, you know, we, we talked and you were enthusiastic about talking about the items and you know it was almost like you know rekindling an old friendship you know when when we got to talking about these items on that and about the monsters because we you know we had the same interest so i i didn't really see you as a a businessman i started to see you as as this you know friend over the internet that i know and over the years that that's how it was and i've never seen it other than anything else, you know, you could go to all these other sites and it's just kind of like, you know, it's just a, a, a simple business, you know, you buy the it, stuff, they, they ship it to you and then, then that's it. They don't care well, you know, anything else about you. Th- that's why Joe, when I, when I saw how you were and when I saw how you, um, throughout the years, you stayed in contact. I'm like, you know, this guy's really like me and he's a really nice guy. So I started talking to you and you were one of my favorite customers, basically. And that's when I asked you, let's start this podcast together, because there is so much we can put on the table here for people out there. Uh, I mean, I know you haven't mentioned it yet. I'll, I'll mention it. Me and you have been, you know, have a lot of plans in, in work here. One is we're going to have now Craig Talbeck was the original guy in Johnson Smith for 40 years that basically created all the Johnson Smith catalogs. He's also known to have started a a division of Johnson Smith called the lighter side, 
which turned into a $300 million year, a year business. And he also coined the phrase, things you never knew existed back in the early 80s. Um, he was an asset to Johnson Smith until 2010 when he finally parted his way because he retired. You know, he, he was with the company 40 years. At the same time, when I started in 1985, I got together with the original owner of Fun Factory and we started the Fun Factory. And here, here's kind of like something that, that I could say. It, it's, it's kind of like a, a little thing out there. I'm going to throw a little thing out there that very few people know. The first mail order company that ever ran in comic books was in Action Comics was Johnson Smith in Superman number one. And the last mail order company to run an ad in comic books in 1993 was Fun Factory under me. <laughs> so basically, me and, and Lou Weiss, the original owner, in a partnership we had, we ran the last comic book novelty company that run, oh, I'm, I'm saying the last ad in comic books. And they appeared in DC Comics in the December slash January uh, issues of DC Comics in 1993. Now, having said that, I, we're going to have in a future show, we're going to have Lou Wise and Craig Tarvek as our guest. And we will ask them questions that I'm sure a lot of our listeners would love to hear concerning how they came about, how they developed, and how they targeted kids at the time to sell them things. And, you know, when I, when I was talking with, with Craig today, and he had mentioned that they had placed their first comic book ad in Action Comics number one, 1938, the, the first appearance of Superman. It, it took me a minute, but I, I was thinking, you know, Alfred Johnson Smith, he was very intuitive to to put a mail-order mystery ad into comic books. I mean, there, there had been platinum comics you know, Platinum Age, as we look at them now, comics at the time, Yellow Kid and so on. But for him to to have the, you know, the foresight to put it in this comic and, and knowing how, how popular this comic has, has gotten, you know, over the years, especially, you know, coming out of the Great Depression and going into World War II, you know, the, the comic industry started to, to blow up after that action comics number one. And, you know, Alfred Johnson Smith was right there, you know, ahead of the mail order game with with his advertising in those comic books hitting at that time, because at the time, those comic books were geared for younger readers. And, you know, there wasn't too many adults that read those. So he was he was hitting that direct market of those kids and those kids were turning around, running to their parents saying, hey, I need, you know, a dime or so to, to get this item or that item. And you know, they, they started making a killing, you know, I, I, I know, I believe it was 1941 to 1946 that they didn't have a catalog out and the company was kind of on hiatus due to the, the war. But after the war, they were making millions a year and all this advertising from the comic books was part of the big reason for that. Another big reason was they were advertising in the pulp comics, which at the time, the pulp comics were geared towards the older readers. So not only was he hitting the younger readers with the comics, but he was hitting the older readers with, you know, 
with the pulp books. So he was really a, you know, kind of like ahead of his time. He was a genius. Now, originally, the original Johnson Smith Company was started in Racine, Wisconsin, I think it was. And then they moved on to Detroit, Michigan and stuff. But well, he started in he actually started in Australia. Yeah, yes, in Australia, he, and then and then came over. He um, came over to he started in Australia in 1904, and he came over to Chicago in 1914, and I believe it was about nine. I believe it was 1926. Yeah, 1926. He moved to Racine, Wisconsin, and then his sons, when uh, Arthur and Paul got involved, and. Paul had the idea of moving the company to Detroit in 1935 in hopes of gaining a subsidiary in a subsidiary company in Canada. Well, come, you know, come December, what was it? December, 1941, uh, you know, the United States entered the war. Well, the war, you know, of course started in 39, but we, the United States entered in 41, but because of, the advent of World War II, he wasn't able to get that company into Canada, and that kind of folded uh, from there. So, and then he went over to, you know, when you say Paul, Paul is one of the sons that actually he's the one that ran the Johnson Smith Company, and um, he's the one that also, you know, created my legendary seven foot ghost. And you know, <laughs> it, he together with uh, Craig, Craig did the ad. Uh, there was a guy there. They had two artists that right now they both passed away, and 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 that's how you know the seven foot goals came into being, which in my opinion was the most popular ad they ever had. Um, to me, the ghost will always live on as the best item I ever had or owned, and I'm proud to say I still got the original, both the Johnson yeah. Smith and the Melton Company ghost. I also do have the original Honor House, which is the first one I ever ordered. But unfortunately, the head is missing. You know, <laughs> we can. Well, the head. Well, it, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for the day that you, you know, you invite me over there from from Ohio to New Jersey, and we put that that submarine together and have, uh, you know, our own adventure. Yeah, that. that was... <laughs> I, I doubt two of us could fit, in, or even one of us probably. <laughs> you, you know what's so funny about when you say the submarine? I decided to unbox the thing. Now, this is probably the only one that's left in the planet, right? And I unboxed it, and I'm showing it, and people got angry that I didn't put it together. <laughs> and I go, why in the world will I build the only one left? Now, here, here's the thing that's funny on this. When you build the submarine, and, you know, Honor House had a couple. They first issued the rocket, later the tank, then the submarine. And very few people know this, but they also, in close to 1995 or 96, they issued, um, I'm sorry, 1989, 86 to 89, I forgot the exact time. They also issued the space shuttle. It was a seven-foot space shuttle. Um, I have, oh, I had two of those. And, you know, sad to say, back in 1995, I had a storage facility fire where I lost four of my original, four bins filled with collectibles that took me quite some time to recuperate. Um, I praise God and I go, Jesus, thank you for protecting me, uh, protecting the stuff that meant to me. Because the, the ghost survived the fire, and so did my seven-foot Frankenstein, Bony the Skeleton, and all that. But I've I got to tell you something that was really, really, int- uh, you know, an interesting part about all this. All that stuff that I still have and the time, 
and, and, and you know, and when it was created and, and all that stuff during the 70s, that stuff means a lot to a lot of people today. And I have agreed, and, and I'm saying this because we have like five minutes left. I have agreed to always keep that alive as long as I'm alive. You know, I like to keep the tradition alive to let people go back in their childhood, to go back in time, to to create that. And when, when Kirk DeMaris asked me one time that he wanted to write a book and he wanted to photograph my collection, I opened up the door, my doors to him and he came up here and spent three days from Arkansas photographing my collection. Um, that's why everything inside the book Mail Order Mysteries, which I believe has sold close to uh, two million copies, um, that book, uh, everything in there is mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, the, there was not a, uh, there's no picture of the submarine because I didn't have time to find it when Kirk was here. Uh, I had to search the things. And, you know, after you spent three days taking things out of uh, two storage units, one was 15 foot by 30 and the other one was at the time 10 by 10. Yeah, you know, that, that could be a little time. Yeah, consuming. it was crazy. We were there from like 730 in the morning, eight o'clock to like one o'clock in the morning one day. So I was just, I was tired. I couldn't do it anymore. Um, well, you know, that, that that's kind of like the, you know, the same reason why I, I do a lot of the, the writing for classic horror and sci-fi. You know, when I, when I started off with scary monsters, I, my first article was on the Ben Cooper masks. And then I, I, I went on, well, not only the mask, but the costumes, but then I went on to the old time radio shows, you know, lights out and dimension X. And then I start. I got into, you know, more of the classic movies and all that. And it was, you know, I, I wanted to take people back to, you know, this maybe forgotten time or this time that they, you know, that they like thinking about, you, you know, j- just to, you know, even if it's for the, the 10 minutes or 15 minutes that it takes them to read that article, you know, that they could go back to that time and, and relive those memories. That That's something that, that keeps driving me to, to want to, to do that. And I think that's the same thing, you know, for you is that these items that you sell on house of the unusual, it's, it, it brings these people back to a time that they, you know, wish that they could relive, but now they get to relive it, you know, in, in the present day. And it, it it's kind of a, a form of escapism and it's from, from reality it's that just makes them happy. Yeah. yeah. You know, Joe, and we, that's what it's all about. It's about the people. We have two minutes left and I'm going to ask you in closing this, I'm, I'm going to say one of the other things I really quick is I'm also going to ask um, Ray Castillas. Now Ray Castillas is a, one of the friends I, I, I met in universal monster army. And he's also the leading collector of top stone in Ben Cooper mask. And, and he was going to be writing a book about the whole history of mask. And I probably would like to have him on in our show. I, I, he would be a great asset to talk with. Um, is there anything you'd like to say in the last two minutes we have? One con- cl- closing comments? Sure. <laughs> you know, I, I, I urge people to, I know social media, Facebook and Instagram and all these have taken over. But I urge people to go to sites like houseoftheunusual.com and universalmonsterarmy.com and and join these forums and interact with people because on these forums there's no there's no politics there's no you know religion there's no 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 bickering back and forth it's 
it's it's all friends it's all it's really family oriented you know talking about the stuff that we love so you get all the good stuff you know on these forms so i urge everyone to go there you know support house of the unusual support universal monster army if you get a chance and you're on facebook come over to crypt of classics come over there and interact because we we have a a, a small group of about 500 and you know 50 people or so but it's a it's a good core group of people that love you know the genre love what they're doing we have horror hosts we have writers artists everybody and everybody's so passionate about about the you know the classic horror and the classic sci-fi and it's 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 a fun place to be so i urge everyone to check those sites out and to uh you know keep the classics and the mail order mysteries alive you know as as long as they can and we will And, and to pass on to their friends too, get their friends involved and also, we will be having in our in our show. I'm I'm trying to hear back from, but the Mr. Larry Wilcox from uh, Chips from the original TV show Chips, and I'm also going to have in the show Corporal Agarn, uh, the original Corporal Agarn from F Troop, and you know, hopefully, I can I, I, if if everything's willing, I'm also going to have Sarah Karloff, and possibly Victoria Price in future shows. So it's going to be fun. We need people to tune in. We need people to come to the house of the unusual.com, become members of the forum, become members of the blog, put in your information. Uh, let's get to know each other better. And um, having said that, Joe, it's been a pleasure talking with you again, as always. Uh, you we, too, Eddie. We are now co-hosting this beautiful show that hopefully will take off. And until next time, Joe, 